Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. We are back with another edition of Pop and Lock Summer Book Club. And boy, howdy, do we have a barn burner of a book to discuss today. <laughs> it's been banned, blamed, and lit aflame, but it still carries on. <laughs> Joining us to discuss Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 is Features Editor at Reason, Peter Suderman. Thanks for having me. And Cato Institute Senior Fellow, Pat Eddington. Greetings to all. Now, I know I said this for our 1984 uh, recording, but Fahrenheit 451 is definitely one of the most famous stories ever written and eventually adapted to a largely uh, disappointing movie, to say the least. Um, But what is it about this story that why does it continue to live on? Why does it why is it required reading for basically every middle schooler across the country? I mean, I, I, I think there's a bunch of reasons why this um, remains relevant to contemporary audiences. Uh, for one, it's just an enjoyable, easy read, uh, right? It, it, it moves pretty fast. It's a short book. You can read it in just a few hours in an evening. Um, but it also just sort of feels like it's part of the time, right? It sort of, it feels of this era in a certain way. I mean, um, this it, this book isn't about Twitter, and it's not about social media, and it's not about cancel culture. But it doesn't take too much of a leap to move it in that direction, right? It, it sort of, it feels like a book about, um, about a lot of the debates that we are having in our, uh, in our political discourse today. Um, you know, and this is a book with uh, this is a book with a, a a lot of rants about speech suppression and speech suppression in various forms, um, and what you are and aren't allowed to say, and what it means to be an individual with um, with antisocial thoughts, uh, someone who sort of has a, a view that is against the consensus or outside of the um, outside of the acceptable range of views. That that sort of that sort of conversation, uh, that that sort of debate is all, has been part of our conversation. I mean, you can see in this book for well over fifty years at this point, and it's still very much part of the conversation today. And so, um, this book, uh, this book is a classic in part because it's just sort of well executed and and fun and enjoyable uh, to read. It's very passionate and sort of fiery, um, so to speak. Uh, but it's also it's also relevant because it's about issues and ideas that people continue to care about this it's accessible right um there's there's a slice of science fiction um that tends to be inaccessible in a lot of respects and kind of has a tendency to leave people kind of scratching their heads wondering what's going on this is written in a in a very breezy style for the most part not a tremendous amount of jargon and yet this whole issue of government tyranny against a backdrop of war, which is one of the things that, you know, disappointed me about both movies. Um, although that it, you know, I rewatched the 1966 version as well as the 2018 one. And the, the 66 version is clearly vastly more authentic, uh, much closer, you know, to, uh, to Bradbury's vision, even though they were somewhat limited by the, uh, by the available props of the day, uh, in, in the 19, mid 1960s when this thing was made, but it has, it has this feeling, at least for me, of being very dark and very stifling. You get a sense of how stifling the society was um, that he was talking about. Um, for me, I, I think some of the issues that, that stand out that maybe make the book kind of fall short for me is that you don't get a lot of background here, right? We, we don't get a lot of build up essentially to exactly how the society got to the place where it was. I mean, you do get some sense that there, that it's not all that, it's that it hasn't been all that long because you do have people who remember to some extent the before times. Now it's not quite perfectly clear whether they remember because that's the way it was when they were children or because maybe they heard stories from their elders, you know, but there's, there is some discussion about, you know, the history and English professors who are walking the train tracks. And it's, it's at least suggested that they at one point were, had, had gone through a kind of traditional academic training as we think of it, or as Bradbury thought of it, you know, uh, in the 1950s. Yeah. But there, there's no, um, 
there's no sense of exactly why it all went off the rails, right? Exactly, you know, what event or series of events essentially led to this state of affairs, to this particular dystopia that, that we're talking about here. So, you know, the lack of background there, you know, that's one of the things that I kind of find lacking. And then what's completely lacking from the 2018 movie um, is this sense of impending war. And even in the 66 version of the movie, you only get a fleeting reference to it. You know, this is when Montauk goes into his little rant in front of all of his wife's so-called friends. Um, that that really had a very Stepford wife, you know, feel to it. I, I, <laughs> I, was, I was having kind of flashbacks to that movie as I was watching that entire segment. But there's there's that aspect that is also missing for me in that regard. But kind of in the larger context, this book speaks to ultimately timeless issues about government tyranny, about suppression of speech, um, about essentially trying to erase the individual, about trying to create a completely homogenized society where everybody's, quote, happy, end quote. Um, and I think all those things ultimately uh, are timeless. And and they speak, uh, as I think Peter said, to kind of the moment that we're living in in a lot of respects. I mean, if you look at the news today, I was just uh, reading op-ed pages this morning and I am exaggerating, but only a little bit when I say that half of the op-eds <laughs> in the major newspapers this morning were about bills banning or uh, restricting the teaching of critical race theory in schools. Um, and and it's again, Bradbury was not writing about critical race theory or right. about <laughs> Republican state bills to uh, to legislate, you know, um, teaching of uh, how we teach uh, race and history in you know in, in k through 12 or higher ed um that's not exactly what he was writing about and yet he has written he he wrote this book in in a way that is both quite universal and strangely specific and so it always feels like it applies to whatever the uh whatever the speech controversies of the day are and, and i think what i found so interesting about the book and this is this is another one of those classic cases where, you know, even if you have the best director and the best producer in the world, and even an all-star cast, you can, you can never really completely, I think, get the full flavor uh, of a book on the screen. It's just, it's just very difficult if for no other reason than trying to keep an audience's attention for, you know, two hours can be a challenge in a lot of respects, unless you got a lot of CGI and, you know, other things going on these days. But the, the character development that we do get, um, is to me very fascinating and the relationship between such as it is between Montag and his wife, um, Mildred in the book, uh, Linda in, in, um, uh, in the 1966 film. These are, these are two people that you just really wonder how the hell they got together to begin with. And you even, you even get that, right? I mean, there's that one point where he asks her, you know, when, what was the first time we met? And she couldn't recall it, you know, Whereas for most couples, you know, who are truly happily married, you know exactly the moment, essentially, that you knew that that was the person. Um, and, and, and so you just, you get this sense that there's this societal dystopia that also extends down to these relationships. Um, and, and you see that in the superficiality of the relationship that his wife has with her so-called, uh, female friends. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It, it just creeps me out in a lot of ways. It really does. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the relationships, and especially in the, in the book, are like as very distant. Um, which which is like one of the reasons I wrote down. Um, like what is the you know the purpose of like the Clarice character, right? So she comes in and she's like a younger uh, teenager ish, I think, um, and it stuck out to me because she was actually like have trying to have deep conversations with, with Montag. And that was like the only conversations other than like the long monologues from um, BD and others about like what firemen do that had any sort of substance. Like, and she just asked like simple questions. Well, you know, are you happy? Um, and I, I just like the purpose, I, I still can't figure out like the purpose of her other than it, like, she is mainly a tool for him to see what he like is starting to pick up on about like censorship and that kind of stuff. But did you guys see any other purpose for her? 
I, I, I thought she was basically a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Essentially a substitute for his conscience. Um, and that it was essentially an awakening and, you know, what it is that actually gets it going is, is, a, is a little bit, you know, fuzzy. Landry, you had something you wanted to jump in. Oh, well, I just, I mean, I think that there very much is, is a reading in here that sort of gets at both what you're saying, Pat, and what, what Natalie was saying, which is it's in to use a sort of misunderstood and I think overwrought trope that gets tossed out a lot of the days. It is a very much a sort of proto manic pixie dream girl that we get. <laughs> right. Where she comes into his life and is like, do you like the Smiths? And he's like, yeah. oh yeah. Have you looked at the flowers? <laughs> yeah. And and I was thinking about it because we had just, like Natalie had hinted at before, we just read 1984 and Julia very much acts similarly to the protagonist of that book, Winston Smith. Um, now, I think Julia, I think mostly just for the you know, because she has more time in the story to act and do things, has more agency and I think is more fleshed out. Um, but I think Orwell and Bradbury both don't have like great track records writing female characters. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that's, you know, primarily what they're focused on per se. But I do think there is some merit in in what Pat is saying for sure about like it is a reflection of his conscience um but it is kind of odd the way they kind of they toss her aside so quickly um i did think that maybe you could build up that relationship more and maybe the car crash that she uh, dies in becomes more emotionally effective later on but then you also get the sort of weird mirroring later on when uh montag is is running away and i think he's been tranquilized i think and he almost gets hit by a car as well so there is a, a sort of instance of sort of seeing the that that spirit awakening in him and the threat of a possible demise that also has met her and you could also possibly think that Later on towards the end of the book when Montag has met with the sort of intellectuals and people living on the fringes of society and they reveal to him, they're like, well, we think Montag is actually going to be caught um, in just a few minutes. And they basically trot out this stranger, this this fake Montag to put on a show that, yeah, we've arrested him and he'll, we're going to deal with him. You could – I mean obviously the state in this story has the power and – drive to deal with their issues in with subterfuge and uh ways that are you know not above board um you could see that maybe someone had known about clarice and maybe she didn't just get into an accident and somebody hit her with the car <laughs> and so i you know clarice I, didn't kill herself <laughs> yeah, yeah, the red string, I'm pulling it as I'm saying it but you know i, I might be overthinking this but uh you know it, it is I did want more out of that character, and, um, and I think it's reflective of the time it was written. In one of the afterwards that uh, Bradbury wrote to this book, he talks about the character of Clarice, and um, and he's talking and he talks about uh, adapting his book to be a play. And so uh, we mentioned adaptations earlier, and this book um, has has been adapted into a couple of different uh, movies, but it was also adapted into a stage play in Los Angeles in the early 1980s. And Bradbury himself did the adaptation, expanded the book in a bunch of ways. And he talks about being tempted to give Clarice more and to bring her back, um, in part because that's what Truffaut does in the 1966 ad uh, film adaptation, is that um, she appears at the end. She has become one of the book people who is living in the book colony as a book, um, which is kind of great, right? Is that she, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a softer and, and, um, happier ending in a lot of ways, uh, a more hopeful ending. And what Bradbury says is he, he toyed with the idea because he was expanding and changing the book a little bit when he moved it to, uh, to the stage. But ultimately he felt like her death was, was a darkness that the book needed to have. And that what he wanted was for people to see that this was, in fact, a dark world that didn't always have happy endings. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm uh, summarizing a little bit and sort of uh, the gist of what he said, but he was arguing. Um, his, his argument basically was this book is about a dark world and about a dark place. And her death is one of the ways 
through which we understand that darkness. There are two ways that a lot of people end up seeing the sort of danger and warning that Bradbury wanted to portray. Um, and they are sort of tied up in one another, but they're from different trains of thought. There is the censorship, free speech, censoring, you know, reading angle. But then there is also a technophobic rise of mass media against reading that you could read the sort of the scourge of screens um and and you could definitely understand how bradbury might be like we got to limit screen time for kids um <laughs> no more ipads what do, you, what do you make of bradbury's sort of contempt for mass media that's embedded in this story so he he for a long time after the book was published would sort of in a in a way that is typical of his cantankerous style would look at all these people saying this is a book about censorship and he'd be like no it's not this is a book about screens and how mass media is bad <laughs> um right and and it, and you know it's not quite a fully luddite fully techno skeptic book he you know in one of the monologues about the uh how mass media dumbs things down they actually uh, one of the characters actually says well look you could make things that are smart in this medium it's possible right it's not that it's that the medium necessarily demands this it's just that as you start making products that are designed to to appeal to the masses and then uh to the median viewer median reader median person Inevitably, you're going to sand off the rough and interesting edges um, that come from individual visions. And so, you know, in some ways, this is a little bit self-serving coming from a novelist, coming from from someone who was a self-styled kind of independent individualist. On the other hand, there's a truth to this. And there's in particular a truth to this in the post-war era where a lot of media was just, you know, a lot of mass media was just coming online and there wasn't this kind of profusion that we have now of hundreds of cable channels and then thousands of internet channels and you know sort of all of this stuff that is that is much more individually targeted and at the time you know if you were watching television it was three networks and those three networks made explicit decisions often basically uh, working hand in hand with government censors or quasi censors uh, from the FCC to produce products that were that were intentionally bland that didn't say too much or go too far off the beaten path because in part they didn't want to upset the FCC and in part because if you have to, if your goal is to capture the mass audience then the interesting stuff that happens at the edges of of, of sort of uh, of, of human society on on the fringes right the the weird people they're not going to be part of that right if you if you just sort of think of 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 human uh, the the of of a a, a nation or a culture's uh, acceptable idea set, it's going to look like a bell curve, and the stuff that's really interesting is going to be at the edges, and the stuff that's really boring is in the center. And what the networks did was they targeted the exact center of that bell curve because that's where the audience was, and that's thus where the money was from the advertisers. And in fact, um, the advertisers were also a big part of enforcing that sort of uh, conformity and conformist way of uh, of producing um, of producing television shows. And so in part, you can see this book as just as a reaction to the mid-century dominance of network television uh, and the way it produced material that was just designed not to offend or and or interest anyone too much and to stay very much in a narrow lane of of acceptable kind of centrist um non-fringy thought and Bradbury just hated that because he was a he was he was a cantankerous difficult individualistic kind of guy um and he is you know in in some sense like i said it's a little bit self-serving but it's also right because if you are targeting the media and then what gets cut gets cut out are the ideas that are um that are a little more interesting, uh, a little rougher around the edges, and that are um, that are a little less popular. This novel was written just a little bit over a decade after the height of the McCarthy era, and and this is, of course, the period of time when television really begins to kind of come into its own, where you have uh, large scale propagation of television sets and. You know, it was it was definitely a mixed bag in that McCarthy in in the beginning 
managed to really use it very effectively to scare the hell out of everybody and to accuse everybody of being a communist, right? But that same medium also turned turned to his undoing. It became his undoing uh, during the Army McCarthy hearings. So, you know, Bradbury's tale, I think, um, you know, gives you just one side of the coin. I, I do want to pick up on what Peter said about um, kind of the soda straw nature of, of major media back in uh, back in the day, back in the mid fifties and sixties. I think that's one of the things that uh, the age that we live in now has made so different. Um, before you had essentially these filters, sometimes they worked in a good way, um, actually bringing you something halfway decent, but uh, oftentimes they were not giving you the full facts. They were not giving you the full truth. And when you have that kind of control, um, you can really create a very distorted society. And I think that's exactly, you know, one of the, for me at least, is one of the principal uh, points of the book. It's when we, we get into the age that we now live in that things get a lot more complicated, uh, a lot more interesting. Because contrary to what a lot of so-called conservatives say, um, there are a huge number of platforms that you can actually engage on now uh, and get your message out on. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Facebook doesn't have essentially kind of a dominant space there, but it's not the only place that you can go. And as time goes on, and I think we see you know more people begin to embrace more decentralized systems uh, for the propagation of information. And I'm thinking about things like Telegram. Um, the FBI hates Telegram. <laughs> the, FB, the FBI hates Telegram for a lot of reasons, uh, especially uh, its, its encrypted nature. But Telegram is becoming one of these places where you're seeing a lot more folks basically go to have these kinds of conversations uh, and, and to engage in activities that some of us would agree with and that uh, some of us would vehemently disagree with. Um, and I think that's I don't think that's something that Bradbury necessarily could foresee. Um, even as bright a guy as he was, even as much of a futurist as he was in a lot of respects, I don't think even he could really understand uh, and predict what would happen with this thing called the Internet and, and how much it would change things. But even now, even now, we see efforts essentially um, on the part of the major players uh, who are in the space, uh, Google and Facebook especially, to basically try to work with government regulators to help basically cement their existing position, um, which is why these debates over Section 230 and and uh, some of the rest of this stuff are really so important. Because if we want to avoid essentially the kind of future that Bradbury is describing for us that could be ours, the more decentralized things are, the more that power thus is distributed to get a message out, the less likely a uh, Fahrenheit 451 world becomes. I think it might be important for us to dive into kind of how censorship is democratized in this story and also how it's like decentralized through the firemen and that kind of stuff. So how how do we think first, let's go with how do we see the censorship as democratized throughout the story? So Bradbury doesn't imagine social media in this story. And in one way, right. in one way, that's how it feels not quite relevant. And yet... And yet he does seem to have a real grasp on the dynamics of social media speech crackdowns and the ways in which the demand for speech suppression comes not always from the top, though sometimes, but often from uh, from the populace. And there is there's a, a, a long bit I, uh, in, in this book about how the firemen didn't start burning books because the government demanded that the books be burned. The firemen started banning books because that's what the public wanted, because the public was was upset by what was in the books and wanted them to go away. And that's again, he's not writing about cancel culture. But he is describing a dynamic that a lot of people have seen online and described as cancel culture and describing what we would today call a social media mob. Um, and he's, he's describing this in the 1950s, which, you know, in some ways tells you about the ways that these debates have not changed in almost 70 years. Um, and it is, it's really interesting just to go back and to remember that even even almost 70 years ago, 
um, folks like Bradbury who were, you know, in, in their times and in their own ways, um, individualists, and you might even say free speech warriors, uh, were, were concerned not only about classic style government suppression of speech, you know, sort of violations of the First Amendment that are official, you know, capital C censorship, but also about the ways in which the public, um, sometimes just small groups in the public. And so he is constantly in ways that would absolutely get him canceled. Today, talk, you know, like it, it, both in, in his own writing and then through the voices of these characters in this book, he's constantly like inveighing against the minorities, the minorities, the minorities. They're always upset by something. But he's talking about the ways in which small groups um, – whether they're uh, racial or ethnic or whether they're just sort of uh, they they are bound together by some interest or geographic location or whatever it is, but in which small and particularly sort of engaged and active groups band together to demand something. Um, and, uh, and, in, and in this case, that something being that someone's speech about them or someone's speech about something that bothers and upsets their particular sensibility be prohibited or uh, silenced somehow or another. And it's, it's really kind of eerie just to sort of to read that this and realize, Oh my goodness, this is exactly the same thing that, uh, you know, that my colleagues at reason are writing about all the time that folks at Cato and at fire are just, this is, this is the business, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of, 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 of free speech defense today. Um, and it was, you know, in, it, it was very much the same, uh, back in the 1950s when he was writing Fahrenheit 451. The democratization of the use of the mob to try to hunt down one political dissident on the run, right? I mean, you get uh, in the 66 movie, you know, you, you get, you get the car going down the street with the loudspeaker saying Montag, you know, enemy of the people, essentially yada, yada, yada. Everyone come out and look for him. And on cue, everybody comes out of their house, you know, and is looking around and all the rest of that. Um, the, the power essentially to mobilize people to try to shut down something, uh, or to shut down someone, in this case, terminate someone who you don't, you don't agree with, uh, you don't, you don't want to have out there, you know, saying what they're saying, you know, speaks to a very dark authoritarian impulse that unfortunately is quintessentially American. And it, it literally goes back to the alien and sedition acts. You know, I, I, I talk about this a lot when, uh, you know, when I discuss these kinds of issues, it's, you know, people, people want to think that, um, that the founders were essentially all on the same page. Um, they weren't. The only thing they were on the same page about was getting the British, you know, out of North America. That was about the only thing they were ultimately really all on the same page about. And, and from my perspective, you know, the wrong people wanted the constitutional convention. Um, and the centralized system of government that we have that has only become, even more centralized and in, in my view, fundamentally more oppressive over the course of the last century um, is in some respects, you know, kind of a fulfillment essentially of some of the things that Bradbury and, um, and Orwell and others have written about, you know, over the course of, of the last several years. And, you know, a lot of our friends on the left, you know, want to talk about all the great things the government can do. And I'm usually left scratching my head kind of asking, you know, can you name like three, you know, where they've actually like, where, they, where they've really actually like, you know, done it well and, and done it in a way that doesn't like destroy somebody else's rights along the way. And it's really, it's really hard to find that. And, but I, to be fair, I think that the concentration of power in any entity is a dangerous thing. Um, you know, we're struggling right now with this whole issue of, uh, the power essentially of a relative handful of social media companies to kind of dominate, um, discourse uh in a lot of respects in the public square and we we don't have a, a clean framework for dealing with that now maybe that's a good thing um but i i think that in that respect you know the first amendment when we really adhere to it does give you a blueprint for really how things ought to be you know the first amendment wasn't created to protect speech that we like right it was created to protect speech period especially speech that each one of us might necessarily disagree with. And it's the lack of that kind of a framework, really, 
um, in the social media environment that I think is, you know, helping to fuel so much of this, uh, the cancel culture and all the rest of these things that we've been talking about so far. But I, I think if that authoritarian impulse, which is really what I see with so-called conservatives, people that claim to not want to interfere in people's lives, um, going after, you know, social media companies in this way, and even some people on the left going after social media companies, that's an authoritarian impulse fundamentally. Um, when I see people on the left and the right, both raising hell about Section 230, my reaction is, sounds like it's working. Uh, sounds like it's just kind of fundamentally probably working about the way that it should. Um, if, if people on, on both poles essentially are kind of bent out of shape about it. But I, I think that, you know, Bradbury essentially, whether he meant to or not, essentially continued to predict these kinds of of debates and, and contest. But for me, what I see in all these, all this classic literature essentially is this authoritarian impulse and, and it's scary. And, and the more technology that you have available to you, the more technology that government has available to it, either directly, you know, as in the case of the firemen here, <laughs> uh, or indirectly through, um, you know, companies like Facebook, Twitter, um, all the rest of them out there. In a, in a position to provide data, either voluntarily or involuntarily through legal process, it becomes an incredible force multiplier in a very bad way for government to engage in repression. And that's part of at least of the message that I get um, from things like 1984 and, and this book. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Section 230. I, now that you mention it, I, I guess I think that Ray Bradbury would end up being a defender of, of Section 230 in its current <laughs> form. I mean, so because, because if you actually understand what it does, it's very, it's a very individualist, um, uh, way of thinking about speech. It's often misunderstood as people talk about platform neutrality and all this stuff, but that's not really correct. Basically, what it says is you are not liable for speech generated by others. And you can be Facebook. You can also be any individual one of us, right? So it applies to very large corporations. It applies to uh, medium-sized nonprofits, and it applies to individual people. But it means that just for example, if you are posting something on Facebook and somebody says something actionable in uh, a comment on your Facebook post, you have no liability for that. Now, it also means that Facebook has no liability for what you post or what your friend posts, et cetera, et cetera. But it is an idea that you are responsible for your own words and for your own thoughts and that you have to take responsibility for them, but that others don't, even if they have created a platform um, or a publishing mechanism of some sort that you make some use of. Um, the other thing that I think is uh, really sort of interesting and striking here, just to go back to the the social media mob aspect of this, is the way... Ray Bradbury presents speech suppression and the unpersoning that goes with it as a spectacle and as an entertainment, right? It's not just that the hound hunts you down because it is directed by the, you know, the government agents to do so. It's that it's filmed, it's broadcast, everyone in town tunes in to watch, um, and they even participate. It becomes a game, a sort of a, something where, where everyone is sort of out there watching you. It's not just the government with their surveillance drones and their, you know, smart sniffing robot dog. Um, it's a form of fun. <laughs> to watch the bad person be hunted, right? Right, it's the trending cancel hashtag. Yes, Guy Montag on the side of has been, has been, is, is trending. What did he say? <laughs> oh my gosh, I've got to find out. Um, and then you get to go and watch as the dog hunts down uh, the fake Montag and, and jumps on him and eliminates him. Um, but Bradbury really understood that this was not just about about getting rid of people who we don't like and sort of making them silently disappear. He understands that it is, it's frankly a way for, uh, for a certain type of person, a certain type of, uh, of group to bond together because they have decided that somebody and some thing that that person said is now a non-person who needs to be cast out and dealt with. Um, and it's it's a very disturbing way of looking at uh, how societies function. Um, but I also think it is one that we keep proving Bradbury right on. Precursor to Logan's run, precursor to running man. You know, you, you, you see the you see the thread, you see the thread right down to the present, at least in cinema.
Logan's run is is has been on the list for a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's also very like Hunger Games like too, because like yes. by, yeah. by becoming a form of entertainment for everyone, it's like another level of suppression you're adding on. Like this this could be you if you don't you know walk the straight and narrow. Um, that decentralization, the democratization of the mob. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I think it's also just I don't think Bradbury was seeing it as like a mob necessarily but as like this is how this is how the culture was in the beginning to be like anti-book and anti like common knowledge all that kind of stuff and then it just kind of grew he i feel like he saw it as him growing into the society and just like permeating at that point there's a lot of i speaking of the firefighters that i thought was so interesting natalie is you know you hear a lot like you know, there's a lot of people that are very frustrated with, you know, the militarized and over policing and the the problems with systemic uh, policing, et cetera. But you hear a lot of times where they're like, nobody hates firefighters. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, I get that. I get that. You know, they're just like people that ostensibly save people. But you could also, you know, there are people that are like a lot of the same like infrastructural sort of baked in systemic issues probably also happen with fighting fires where resources get diverted to places that they are are, you know, more focused on rather than others. So you could think that. Um, so I think there's a way to see the firefighter link there. But also, why Benjamin Franklin as the first one? Like we were talking about I don't get it. <laughs> as the founding fathers, or as I call them, the founding daddies. Um, why why Benjamin Franklin? He seemed so concerned with knowledge and and sort of learning things archetypically, or maybe and that might just be the sort of mythic way that we view him, um, to sort of get away from his you know cavorting nature. That was tr- the true Ben Franklin. Why him? I think it's just because he founded the first organization that became that led to what we now think of as as modern firemen and he he founded the union fire company um uh which was uh, people called it the bucket brigade um and ah, yes. right and it was it sort of led <laughs> to the mutual fire societies that uh that were part of uh you know sort of early american culture and so because benjamin franklin was in some sense america's actual first fireman or at least the founder of the first fireman squad um he has been retconned in uh <laughs> in, in fahrenheit 451 bray bradbury would not have known what retconning was but he would have understood the concept immediately um mm-hmm. uh despite uh despite his clear disdain for comic books uh, in this, in Fahrenheit 451, um, he w- he would have gotten it um, right, and so and so what he's done is just imagine a world in which history has been rewritten so that the first person to invent useful firefighting has now um, become reimagined as uh, as the person who was the f- who was both a, an American founder, right? So that gives that brings the book burning version of firemen into the founding narrative. Um, in in the fictional world and then also uh you know sort of it's it's easier to just sort of make it to make this small change right in history and this is kind of a smart thing that he has done because if you're rewriting history if you're trying to retell the story um you you want to tell as few lies as possible and ben franklin was the first fireman so why not make him the first fireman in the in this very different conception of firefighting. Um, and also because he was a, like I said, because he was a founding father that associates him with the power of the founding, which in this story still maintains a kind of mythic cultural and political power that uh, has now been transferred to the book burners. It was an extremely subversive act, right? Uh, one could argue that it, it may have been the most subversive thing um in the entire novel, really, that that kind of rewriting of history, if you will. Um, I think it's also like it's an indicator to like the reader or the audience because they say it in the movie, too, that like because everyone has this glossy eyed view of the founding fathers and no one, you know, really knows too much. I mean, we probably know too much, but like no one digs in deeper than like, you know, oh, these are the founding fathers and their heads are all together. Um, and um, I think that indicates to the reader that it's like the firemen are good, right? Because that's always how the founding fathers are framed. And um, 
I think I just think I just thought it was funny. I like wrote my notes. I was like, well, why not George Washington? <laughs> why not Thomas Jefferson? Like, why can't they all be that way? Yeah, the choice of Ben Franklin associates book burning with um with institutional legacy and institutional permanence. It's it suggests that book burning has always been with us. It's a part of who we are and who and how we conceive of ourselves. The idea that uh, sort of firemen celebrate this destruction or, or sort of a mockery of the knowledge that books represent gets manifested in a lot of ways uh, when uh, – Montag brings the book of poetry out to his wife and their friend when they're watching on the the in the the parlor shows um and at one point they think that he's like making fun of it all by reading it and they're like oh ha 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 this is you know what it's a fireman's like ritual i think they call it or something um and then something that you had noted in your notes peter about how when they adapted it to the stage version they added a scene um, or Bradbury added a scene where I think it's Beattie takes Montag to his huge, vast library of um, unread books uh, that he will never read. He's, he simply keeps them to not read them. Um, and it got me thinking about what the the purpose of unread books would be. And uh, it, it got me thinking because it – they do it in a way that is sort of trying to make these books useless. Um, you know, without being read, they serve no purpose. We are um, sort of making a mockery of them by leaving them on the shelf um, and sort of uplifting our own culture. But then there's also this idea that I, I've read about called the, the anti-library. And uh, I think Umberto Eco has written about it, whereas a book of uh, – a collection of unread books, uh, a personal library of unread books is more of a tool. It is – once a book becomes read – the book itself is useless to you. Um, it is like a, what a lot of people think of now. It is a, a marker. It is a signifier of oh, of, of a certain intellectualism, whereas a, a collection of unread books is a marker of humility and a recognition of ungarnered knowledge and that there is always more to preserve. So I, I just thought it was really interesting the the way that firemen have created this culture. Um, it, it's I could very much see if they adapted it again, like, you know, the, the police social media Facebook photos where it's like, we caught all of this in a drug bust and it's like a little baggie of weed in, in, a, <laughs> in a plastic bag. And they're like, the streets are safe you, that you could see like firemen posting on social media like a stack of like the chronicles of narnia and they're like we've got this scum off the street yeah the the fireman's twitter feed is just going to be filled with <laughs> with uh with great literature um the unlibrary idea is interesting uh tyler cowan um somewhat uh somewhat famously likes to just read books and then leave them places um and like he will just leave them in air, in you know airport lounges or you know in restaurants or whatever uh, because he's read them and sometimes he also keeps many books but um, he is uh, he is he's one of the the best read people I have ever met in my life um, and part of what he does with with books is uh, is read them and give them away yeah that that section um, from the play uh, that you mentioned where uh, Captain Beatty takes Montauk on a tour of his private library is really interesting as an expansion of the novel's ideas uh, because it suggests that the ultimate way to put down a book and to um, to insult book culture is to keep books and treat them simply as empty objects, not as expressive statements to be engaged with. Um, and and it, it treats them as as uh, affectations rather than as uh, as powerful ideas and what it does is it robs them of their power uh because they become you know as ordinary as 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 bricks or plates uh and they don't have any kind of meaning unto themselves uh because they can't have meaning until you read them and yet the fear of people reading animates bd and the entire establishment to do what they do right so there's ultimately there's kind of a contradiction in that, and and there's also the subversive aspect of uh, of Montag 
you know, stashing these things away in, in one of the vents in, uh, in his home and all the rest of that. And this idea of, of forbidden knowledge and, and, uh, and then BD, you know, ultimately in, in one of their, uh, exchanges talking about how all it does is confuse a person and all the rest of this. And, you know, my, my reaction is, well, you know, at some level, confusion is the beginning of, of wisdom. Um, because if you think you've got it, if you, you think if you've got it all figured out, um, you probably don't. Um, you, you have part of the story. You may never have the whole story. Uh, but most people, I think in society, and I think this is something that Bradbury intuitively understood. Most people seek surety. They seek simplicity. Uh, they seek easy answers. They seek easy outs. And that's exactly what the society that Bradbury describes does. It gives people easy outs. And it's the folks that transform essentially into living books who aren't looking for the easy out. They're, they're looking to actually experience the fullness of life. And this instrument of, of oppression is, is trying to essentially wipe out, you know, that, that entire concept. So very dark indeed. The uh, the biggest system of state suppression and ideas and uh, of state suppression of ideas uh, and speech today, I think, is probably in China and um, the Chinese uh, uh, blocking of of the internet and censorship of the internet. Um, and if you listen to Chinese state officials explain themselves about why they do this, they will offer arguments that are very much like the ones offered by Captain Beatty. They will say that those ideas <laughs> just confuse people and mislead people and that people can't be trusted yeah. to have <laughs> conflicting information. And what's even even creepier, if you think about it, is that that kind of discourse is now starting to creep into or maybe it's always been there because Bray Bradbury has been writing about it for, you know, was writing about it um, almost seven years ago. But it's starting to creep into a lot of our discussion about online speech when it comes to misinformation and disinformation. This idea that, in fact, ideas and information need to be controlled because you can't trust ordinary people to sort through ideas, facts and information and opinions and make judgments for themselves. And look, there is a lot of information out there that is bad, that is wrong, that is uh, or opinions that I strongly disagree with. There are people presenting things as facts that are just simply and provably not true um, all over the Internet. Uh, so like I, I'm not in any way denying that any of that exists, but we have we are now starting to kind of um, there's there is a movement in the United States that is gravitating towards this idea that information that is wrong or is dangerous uh, in some ways um, can harm the population and therefore needs to be suppressed either by uh, a kind of de facto state operation within um, often social media or internet companies or by a, an explicit state operation through the federal government. I, I think that impulse, frankly, has always been there. I'm in the process of reading First to Fall, which is about Elijah Lovejoy, um, who was the, the first publisher, essentially, uh, abolitionist publisher to be killed, um, for, um, you know, uh, publishing essentially, uh, a newspaper that called for the abolition of slavery. And I, I, I tend to think that there's always been falsehood in media you know, from the very beginning, what makes our age different is that it travels at the speed of light. It is, uh, it, it, it used to take days for, you know, something to be transmitted in the early days of the Republic. It might have to go by courier, you know, horseback or, or whatever. Once you got to the telegraph, you know, things would move faster, but still that was, that was something that was in the hands of a relatively few number of, of organizations or entities or whatever. And what makes the age that we live in just so, so different and I think so difficult in a lot of ways is this diffusion, right? The, the ability to get stuff out just instantly. I mean, globally, instantly. Um, it, it's been transformative. It's been transformative in some good ways, I would say, with things like the Black Lives Matter movement and, uh, you know, uh, police reform and, and, you know, a range of other issues. But it's also been incredibly pernicious. Uh, and you have hostile foreign actors like the Russians, like the Chinese, others, utilizing this technology essentially to try to undermine uh, not only their own opposition within their own countries, um, but us 
uh, and other Western democracies in in that respect. So it's 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 very much a mixed bag. But to me, what makes it so much different today is just the explosion of it and the ease with which it can be employed. How easy it is to get this stuff uh, and to make it work. And I think that you know, in in that respect, um, it kind of makes Fahrenheit 451 look a little quaint. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, uh, Pat, we'll start with you. What else have you been enjoying uh, media-wise, TV, books, movies, anything? So, uh, well, so I have just a, you know, a huge, huge number of books that I'm accumulating, you know, not not just for my book project, but for things I want to get to. But being the complete Star Wars lunatic that I am, I have <laughs> I, I wait with bated breath until about three oh one AM every Friday morning to download <laughs> the latest edition of the Bad Batch. Um absolutely fantastic animated series. But I I just continue to marvel at what Dave Filoni and John Favreau are able to do the storytelling is it's just fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. It just makes me scratch my head. Why the hell can't the movies be this good? And it's like, Oh, <laughs> that's because Favreau and Filoni are not running the movies. And if they were, we'd, it would be different. Uh, and then, you know, just for the heck of it, you know, Loki, um, that has been, um, for me, it's been a revelation because I'm not so much into the Marvel stuff. But I now understand why Tom Hiddleston is a big deal. This guy has got massive, massive talent as an actor. Um, and he's able to just really showcase it in this. But I I can't wait to see him in other stuff. Um, he's just absolutely on fire. So that's my animated series stuff. As I indicated, um, I am reading First of All uh, about Elijah Lovejoy. A very, very powerful story. Uh, another guy who went through a transition in his thinking um, that ultimately cost him his life in the cause of uh, of abolition uh, and free press. Um, so those are kind of the big things for me right now. So I have been reading um, the book, uh, the novel, A Desolation Called Peace by Arcadia Martine. It is uh, book two of the, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Texcalan series um it's a sci-fi space opera um series the first book a memory called empire one uh, i believe the hugo and the novella i could be mistaken um, or no at least the hugo um for best novel i think maybe the novella went to something else but it was nominated um it is uh that was her first book and uh a desolation called peace is her second they are great novels of uh, they're great. They're they're really great, sort of contemporary space operas that borrow a lot from the golden age space operas, but update them. And so, Arcady Martine works in her day job as a city planner, and so there is an awful lot about cities and city bureaucracies and how they work and how they function and ha- have internal factioning and and politics within them, um, and how those those those. Uh, those human systems can work against each other, um, with inside government. And then also how the infrastructure of a city can be turned into tools and plots, both for investigation and discovery and also for, uh, be used by political forces. It's not a libertarian book. I'm not pitching it as like a, a book full of, uh, full of libertarian ideas, but it's really smart actually about the way that politics and infrastructure and political structures, um, actually sort of interact with each other. Uh, and the first one in particular is, is structured as a mystery, um, a quite complex sci-fi mystery that involves people who are dead, but not dead, but preserved inside your oh, head. Um, love a good zombie. Yeah. And well, and then this <laughs> in your head, it's not quite a zombie. It's more like a holographic AI replica of your past self. Um, who is, who is, so you, you, that you, old you chestnut. just, yeah, it's, uh, it's delightful if you if you like Ian M. Banks, if you like as Isaac Asimov, um, these books are for you. And the new this the new book, which came out just a few months ago, is about a first contact scenario with a with a 
a species that is so alien that we can't that the our characters initially cannot figure out if the thing that appears to be language is actually language or not. So it's it it sort of leaps ahead like it's it's an interesting um first contact scenario just in the sense that it posits aliens that are truly alien and suggests that the real challenge is is not I don't know negotiating trade deals with them it's literally just figuring out how to understand their intentions or even if they have intentions at all uh which I think is since we are often talking about UFOs and aliens these days I think um actually one of the problems that has been underthought uh in in first contact scenarios we just don't know how these other uh, another intelligence might think and uh or might communicate and she gets at that really well in her in her new book uh for me on the book front i just started reading the invisible life of addison larue um this is another world war ii historical fiction that's like my my, my jam. Um, so, and then on the movie TV front, I'm in season two of The Boys on Amazon. It's like uh, superheroes, but it's also just kind of like they're making fun of superheroes, and um, it's it's quite good. Uh, it's a little vulgar, but it's 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 entertaining. Um, Do you feel then- like you uh, like? That show, are you like a, are you enough of a comic book fan that you feel like that show actually, you under, like get all of the references? Because the comic so, book in particular that it's based on was so deep in the superhero weeds. There was a character who was like a kind of awful old man who was based on Stan Lee. And a bunch of the characters were based on people in the actual comic book industry who had not great <laughs> reputations just as people in some cases. And the, the book was like the series was just like a, a huge. <laughs> it was it was a a vehicle for barely disguised gossip about people in the then failing comic book industry because it came out in the early aughts uh, right after Marvel had declared bankruptcy <laughs> and basically the comic book world had gone bust. Huh. Well, so I don't know the uh, the in- intricacies of of that, but I am still enjoying the show. So I guess that's a good pitch to anyone who does who isn't as engrossed in the comic book world so that the show is still enjoyable. Um, and then from a movie standpoint, we're going through like a bunch of horror films with me and my housemates uh, because one of my housemates had never even seen Silence of the Lambs. Um, so we started we started there um, and. We're kind of building up. We, we're doing, um, we've done two of the Conjuring movies. We haven't done the most recent one that just came out in 2021 yet. Um, we did Annabelle Creation. We're watching them in the correct um, order of the film, the time period in which the film was set rather than the when they were released. Um, and then we have uh, Hereditary on our list as well. And I have not seen that one yet. Yeah, that's what's next up on my list. Uh, for me, I am currently – I just started a book of short fiction by Carmen Maria Machado, Her Body and Other Parties. Um, very dark sort of horror feminist short stories. Really cool stuff though. Um you know, it has that beautiful, like, just the, the last minute short story twist that I love. Um, and I have recently, I just bought the uh, latest Assassin's Creed uh, game for my PlayStation, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. So I am running around being a Viking. Um, I have never played an Assassin's Creed game myself before. Um, but, uh, it's fun. It's fun. It's not perfect. I had an arrow that got stuck in my hand and then the glitch just stayed. So I was like in a cut scene pointing at someone and there was just like an arrow like sticking out of my hand the whole time. So, so um, I've played a, a bunch of the Assassin's Creed games, but I had skipped several of them until Valhalla. And the biggest surprise for me having skipped over a bunch of the games was that now one of the mini games and regular challenges is a poetry cut co- like a slam poetry contest? It's a, yeah, it's a You're- freestyle slam poetry rap <laughs> like, battle. What? Which is totally, yeah. I guess, what Vikings did or something. I I don't know. Flighting. <laughs> oh yeah, 
It's a good time. It's fun. I've only done it a few times. What I actually really like is there is like a a dice pooling yeah. strategy mini game uh, that's really really fun. Uh, normally the like game like little games inside games I'm not super into. Like I played The Witcher three and I could never. I have never won a hand in Gwent ever. Oh man, it I is- probably played more Gwent than I played the actual Witcher three game. <laughs> that's what a lot of people do. I I don't. People have tried to explain to me Gwent, and I'm like, I don't get it. But the dice pooling game in Valhalla, I think, is actually it's really simple and really fun, and was was a uh, tense to the to the end of my first round. So I like that. And uh, my wife is currently playing Odyssey, and she was like, "You should play Valhalla, but don't play Odyssey because you can only have like one quick save at a time, and I don't want to override your game." So, <laughs> so I'm playing Valhalla right now, and then we're gonna switch. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen as well. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>